what about the irresponsible, the anarchic, the 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 throw it all out and and don't care, the the people who have that sort of attitude, you know, the the responsible. It's just I don't know what what you know. The responsible for the community is usually the people in the neighbourhood watch. You know, I'm an old punk basically. You know, the irresponsible are of use sometimes, and they can be bloody annoying as well. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, my artful accomplices. My name is James Mannion, and I am delighted that you have chosen to spend part of your one and only life listening to the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. Today, I bring you the second part of my recent conversation with Martin Robinson. The first time we spoke a few weeks ago, we ran out of time and so we scheduled a follow-up conversation and I decided to publish them as two separate episodes or else it would have been like three and a half hours long and that's almost as long as the average feature film is these days. Am I right? Seriously, get an editor, guys. Although as someone who's published four, five, or maybe even six hour podcast interviews, I realize I'm on thin ice here, but I'm trying to be a better person, one day at a time and all that. Anyway, in my second conversation with Martin, we continued to discuss character education a bit more. We discussed the importance of anarchy and the value of violence, interestingly. We talked about Martin's fascinating book, Athena versus the Machine, the canon, decolonizing the curriculum, communities of inquiry, to name just a few juicy morsels. And it doesn't matter if you haven't already listened to part one of my conversation with Martin, there are no spoilers or anything here, but you may well wish to do that, should you so choose, if you haven't done so already, indeed. Before we get into this conversation, I'd like to share with you a letter I received this week. In fact, I received a few interesting letters this week. Maybe this will become a regular slot, listeners' letters or something. Maybe something a bit easier to say. They're not letters anyway, are they? They're emails or whatever. They're contact forms via the website. What do, what do you call that? Colleagues' contact forms. It needs work, doesn't it? Anyway, I receive quite a lot of missives, if you like, and many of them follow a similar theme. And this one I thought I'd share with you as an illustration of that theme, because I think that it's quite interesting and important. The person who wrote this letter has given me their permission to publish it, although they did request to remain anonymous. So the letter reads, Dear James, thank you so much for your podcast. It has opened my eyes to so many ideas in the few months that I've been listening and has crystallised lots of vague dissatisfactions that I've been feeling. This person goes on, I am a science teacher in a pretty normal, by current standards, comprehensive school, normal in inverted commas there, the teachers at this school are mostly very conscientious and the students mostly would like to do well at school. We get okay results. But every day at school, I see exhausted, fed up staff and young people who are in various stages of open rebellion and or total collapse. Depending on the class, my lessons vary between silent and focused and again, open rebellion. The worst part of my situation is that I no longer believe in what we're doing, but I am compelled to do it and I'm behaving contrary to my own values. I don't think young people should be forced to take subjects, to sit in rows, to call me by my surname, to mindlessly bow to my authority, to wear a uniform, 
be silent, to churn out responses to exam questions, but I'm sucked into the system. I find myself becoming angry with students who are defiant because I know that my failure to make them toe the line will be noted and I will be found out as letting the side down. Your podcast is a beacon of hope that there are places and people and ideas out there which can improve education. But every time I listen, I'm forced to contrast my own well-meaning school with the infinitely better alternatives, and it sinks me so low. But what can I do? There is no SMLC, that's the Self-Managed Learning College, High Tech High or XP school within commuting distance. To improve my situation, my alternatives are to open my own school or take the blue pill and become an ever more effective cog in the machine. What should I do? Close quote. It's quite the letter that, isn't it? For a number of reasons, my initial response was, "Wow, how do you how do you answer a question like that?" Um, and I did actually send a response, and I had a lovely response back in turn. And so, you know, this person is okay, I should say, um, but it's powerful for a number of reasons. Some of the language that really stuck out at me, this idea of exhausted, fed up staff and young people in various stages of rebellion and or collapse. This phrase that says, I no longer believe in what we're doing, but I'm compelled to do it and that I'm behaving contrary to my own values. This is something that I've heard from several current and former teachers. The idea that the school system is really one size fits all and that wherever they choose to work in their local community, they wouldn't be able to find a school that aligns with their values. I too have worked for organizations that run contrary to my own values, both within education and outside of it. And I know from experience that it is not fun. I found it to be a horrible feeling that made me just feel so wrong in a really deep-rooted way. At one time, I remember it almost felt like I was in the wrong skin, that my life had gone down a track that it shouldn't have gone down, and I felt like I was lost and that I didn't know how to find my way back. In recent weeks, we've seen lots of head teachers and former head teachers starting to speak out about their experiences with Ofsted, but I think that there's some wider work to be done here. There are lots of people working within the system, teachers, teaching assistants, head teachers, who feel like they aren't working in a way that aligns with their values. And often those people don't speak out because they, you know, because it's politically difficult to do so. But if you find yourself in that situation and you want to give voice to these thoughts, please feel free to drop me a line. Uh, there's a link in the show notes where you can do so. Um, I'd be very interested to receive further letters from people not just with similar views to that, but with a wide range of views. So please feel free to get in touch. So to today's episode, Martin Robinson is an educationalist, an author, a writer, a consultant, a speaker and a liberal artist. He worked in East London State Schools for more than 20 years as a teacher, as a head of department, as an advanced skills teacher and as a school leader. For the last 10 years or so, he's worked as an education consultant, delivering workshops and keynotes about curriculum design, teaching methods and culture. He's a regular on the conference circuit, both in the UK and internationally. And indeed, Martin, if I may shoehorn in a mention of the Rethinking Education conference, Martin spoke at last year's conference, a conference that will, you will be intrigued to hear, take place again later this year on Saturday, the 23rd of September at Parliament Hill School in North London. Early bird tickets are now available and as a friend of the podcast, I can share a special 
offer with you. If you'd like to come to the conference or indeed if you know anyone else who might be interested, you can use the promo code RE20FRIEND, all capital letters, RE20FRIEND, all caps, to receive a further 20% discount. That will give you a total reduction of £20 from the general admission price. So do come along if you can, and if you can't make it, please do feel free to spread the word and to share that promo code RE20FRIEND with anyone that you think might like to take advantage of this offer. The offer is only available until April the 30th, 2023, so get in there quick. I don't know whether Martin will be there again this year, I haven't asked him yet, but I would be delighted, of course, to welcome him back. Anyway, I'll stop talking about the conference now in order to teleport you seamlessly through the magic of technology to my recent conversation with Martin Robinson. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so we are welcoming back Martin now to part two. Welcome back to the Rethinking Education podcast, Martin. We're re-rethinking. We are indeed. How meta is that? That's <laughs> right up my street. So um, uh, we've got more to we've got more ground to cover. So if I may, I'd like to I'd like to return to this to this thorny issue of character education for a while. Okay, maybe some light skirmishing. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And then we'll get into Athena, um, Athena versus the machine. Uh, your brilliant book about the curriculum, um, and and how how machine like and sort of office like schools have become, and how bureaucratic, and how we can put some blood and guts and passion back into this thing. Um, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth there, but that seems to be essentially the thrust of it. So with regard to character education, I was going to do this the other way around, but let's let's take this first. You 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 may recall a while ago we had a we had a light skirmish, if you want to call it that, on on Twitter. A, Never a clashing of of swords and shields in a, in Athena-like fashion. Because I wrote a thread um and it was in September, and it was just around the time of the Liz Truss Quarteng fiasco, where they crashed the the country's finances. And I wrote, um, it seems to me that lots of the education debate depends on what you consider the boundaries of education to be. There are lots of very well educated people who seem to be somewhat underdeveloped in other areas. Clever, stupid people, you might say, or clever, cruel people, or clever, reckless people. Is it overreach to suggest that it is the role of educators to develop well-rounded people, people who are not only knowledgeable, but also compassionate, articulate, responsible? Are teachers merely in the business of relaying a preordained curriculum, or are we in the business of trying to shape young lives so that they become well-rounded, caring, functioning human beings and responsible guardians of planet Earth? And then I finished my little tirade by saying, if you're in the latter camp, then we urgently need to rethink education. And if you're in the former camp, I really think you're mistaken because right now, educational success stories, in inverted commas, are running the country and the planet into the ground. So that was the thrust of my 
of my uh and now you know you've never let a crisis go to waste and it was essentially you know like responding to a news event by me saying reaffirming what i already think about you know issue x and i'm i'm very aware that i was doing that and they, and it elicited quite a quite a lot of of negative response um it, i felt at one point i remember i was sort of supposed to be at a dinner party and all these tweets were coming in felt like i was being swarmed um and people were sort of saying that you, you know you're talking about doing the work of parents they, they were sort of suggesting that this is overreach um and and you you um came in later on and for some reason i can't find your responses um but essentially you were sort of just trying to gently question I think it's because Elon Musk has broken Twitter and no, nothing works anymore. Uh, <laughs> I've been shadow banned. Yeah, you've been shadow banned in retrospect. <laughs> um, you were sort of just gently trying to question and to tease apart my thinking. And you were essentially saying that I was trying to create people that are, that think like I think. Um, and, and for the benefit of listeners, Martin is nodding <laughs> uh, with eyebrows raised. Is that essentially your opposition to that, to that argument that this is... That this is an overreach and that that um that it doesn't end well when we when we go down this route. What's your what's your concern with this with this line of argument? Yeah, I I think I was we talked about this in part one as well a bit, but if if you start with the idea that education is to free the individual, to free the person, to think for themselves, to to live a fruitful life or or an unfruitful life or whatever they want to live, um, then anything that smacks of telling them what they should be like as a human being starts to starts to worry me a bit, I expect. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give people experiences and knowledge and ideas and thoughts, but they, they should open their mind to possible experiences and possible things to think not that you should think this that you should be um a, a climate change warrior or something like that for example um so you know now what my opinion about climate change or, or environmental issues might be is one thing but in the world as a whole if everyone thought the same about everything and I think we would lose a lot of creativity, a lot of thinking, a lot of possible futures, if you like, but also better thinking as a whole, because it takes it takes um, was it a village to raise a child or whatever it is that that sort of ridiculous um, um analogy I'm trying to draw there, but but this this whole thing about the world being the child in that case. In other words, it takes all of us to have our different opinions and our different way of thinking about things and to enrich the lives of us all. Enrich. I've said that word again. I used that <laughs> earlier. Sure. It should be a word. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that took me back. Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, it's, it's the same with the, the political process, the democracy, all these things where we're taking in a, a range of ideas, a range of thoughts, a range of people in order to make things better, to not put all our eggs into one basket, to not to not make everything the same, because that way we become, I think, is it Taleb who talks about this with being fragile? Everything becomes very fragile if we're all 
agreeing all the time and we need to be anti-fragile we need to think of different ways of seeing things and, and and to make sure that our ideas are stronger that the way we're going forward is stronger and this is the strength of democratic thinking if you like of free peoples etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah i can see that um and so and so i'm, I'm trying to sort of to understand where where your line is because i agree that you know we shouldn't be we shouldn't be you know, trying to indoctrinate people into certain ways of thinking. Although, you know, like the, the the line that I used in that thread was to be like responsible guardians of planet Earth. That's not saying that I think that everybody should be like super gluing themselves to the, you know, to the Department for Energy. and. No, but you said responsible. So what about the irresponsible, the anarchic, the 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 throw it all out and, and don't care? The, the people who have that sort of attitude, you know, the, the responsible, it's just, I don't know what, what, you know, the responsible for the community is usually the people in the neighborhood watch, you know, it's like everyone wants to be in the neighborhood watch. You want people who are, who are like that rather than those who say F this, F that, um, throw a few things around and just generally churn things up. I'm an old punk, basically, you know. Yeah, so but I, also, I, I believe, I believe, yeah, but so you, you, the irresponsible are of use sometimes, and they can be bloody annoying as well. Yeah, I'll come back to that because I mean, I think that there's a there's a lot in here, like so so like there's a lot of irresponsible behavior, right? So like corporate corporate behavior. Like all of the the sewage that's being pumped into our waterways at the moment. Just earlier today, I was listening to a, a really interesting little series that's been on Radio Four called Buried, and it's about buried toxic waste. And there's this there's this woman who in Italy who's taking on the mafia in Naples because they were burying all this toxic waste, and her son died of died of cancer, um, a cancer that doesn't ever usually occur in children because they were they were irresponsibly burying toxic waste, and so. You know, I agree that you know that there's a there's an element of like I, I think that I think that there's a there's a a difference between you know between sort of encouraging uh, lively debate and 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 for example teaching the controversy and te and teaching that things are contested and that we want to have a diversity of views and that there is not just one way to to live a virtuous life that different people have different sort of um, ethical frameworks that they adhere to and you know there, there's more than one way to to be to 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 live out what you see as a virtuous or an ethical existence um but still you know um if we're not if we're not talking about you know the fact that these people who are who are well qualified who go on to work at, at you know in, in higher echelons of, of of oil companies for example who knew decades ago what impact they were having on the planet but they were they were compromised by their by their you know um their, well, their job is to to be accountable to shareholders, essentially, and essentially the the system requires people to behave in irresponsible ways in order to maximize profit. Sometimes, right? You know, that's that's a thing. People people cut corners in order to maximize profits, um, and so I don't think that we should completely like like. So, so let me let me rein this back into. I, to well, there's two different things here oh. because you're talking about education in a school. Mm. And now you're talking about the unethical behavior of oil companies, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, you're, I think you're saying, therefore, we have to teach people at school to be behave in a certain way when they become in charge of a, 
multinational oil company or, or something like that are you saying that because i think the human condition anyway is you know you you even if i we turn out the most ethical people let's say like church like church has done over the years yeah the church is to to spill out ethical people this is what they do now if we look through the entire history of religion have we ever found a religion who has spilt out a hundred percent ethical people ethical ethically acting people i don't think so i don't think we've got to a point where we can actually make perfect people to do perfect things because lives and humanity is flawed we live things in certain ways and we find ourselves also compromised by the lives we live that we suddenly are faced with certain choices in our life and because of the context in which we find ourselves we perhaps do different things and we change as life goes by as well we don't live this single um viewpoint for the rest of our lives that we are this person this is me you know mm. um, we we might forever be trying to find out what we are but even the most strident identity finds itself challenged by certain extraneous circumstances they find themselves in and suddenly realize that actually they no longer are this or believe this or think this so and regret mm. you know we find ourselves in positions where we look back on things and we say i wish i hadn't acted in that way or, or whatever so lots of things happen that schools can't be responsible for just as churches have found themselves to be very flawed over time as places that um, hold people up that, oh, it used to be thought, oh, but they're a vicar, you know, so they're a good person, you know. And then since we found out about what that vicar was doing half the time, perhaps we think, well, that's undermined our view of responsible people doing responsible things in responsible ways with the most ethical framework possible surrounding them yeah i mean if that's a that's a massive yeah so so I, I i take your point i can see i can see what you're getting at that you know that attempts to create ethical people perfect people perfect christian people for example um often doesn't end well like in terms of you know there are lots of people who, it who sometimes who, does though it can so, do yeah right which can do <laughs> like, people are complicated but, the world is complicated people are complicated in other words but does that mean that we should wash our hands like are you, are, would you describe yourself as a as a as a non-character education fundamentalist like like so, so to go back to the to the example that you used last week of, of the Millwall fan who, who thwarted a, a terrorist attack and you were saying that it was a good thing that he was violent because in that in that moment his violence was used for for the public good to, that, that probably saved lives um but it seems that you were therefore saying that with the we shouldn't try to teach children that violence is wrong because one day their violence might come in handy. Um, mm. Is that is that essentially right. what you're well, saying? Should should we right? Should we teach violence is wrong in a world where Putin has invaded Ukraine and therefore we have no soldiers to resist it? I mean, violence is not always wrong. It's the context of violence. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you need violence. Well, for, now, for example, you can have some... the discipline. Sorry, sorry, gone. No, no, no. But honing the discipline in the school to say we do not punch each other <laughs> as a way of communicating. Yes, we need to live together in this institution in a good way. But we don't say necessarily that we're all pacifists here. 
that violence can be, but how do you, you know, it's whether it be martial arts or boxing or, or, or various other ways of honing those skills or the army, you know, some people have a cadet force, mm. usually in private schools, of course, you know, or whatever it happens to be, that there are ways of tempering that. Yeah, well, um, but that's short. Like, so, so are you suggesting that martial arts should be taught in schools? I, I'm not saying it should be. I'm saying it could, it could be. be. But they, but these are the things. The thing, and this is the difference. It's saying, well, these are things there that people can choose or they can do it. We're not saying. We're not sitting down in a room with a list of words that are characterful. That this is what a good character is. Tick the box if you've done this. Tick the box if you've done that. What we're doing is getting out there and doing things. Now these things are from the full richness of life experience, if you like, that we're trying to give you flavors of in this school. So whether it be a wide range of things, I think that's great. But the Duke of Edinburgh thing is not about tailoring violence necessarily, but it's it's certainly about doing or scouts or whatever, you know, or, or army cadets or, or whatever it happens to be. There are certain institutions which run, which are, are flawed in themselves, you know, quite often. But but at least they give a range of experiences. And I think schools have their role to play in all that as a range of experiences, a range of things to do, which aren't all exam oriented. And it's not character education. You must fill in this book and, and tick these boxes and everyone's got to assess you around these these seven areas that we think is the most important. Et cetera, yeah, et cetera, so it's not formalized. But uh, but the, the, the things that I mean, I, I for example, I would much I would feel a lot more comfortable with somebody who's, you know, a trained martial artist um thwarting a terrorist attack rather than it being you know a racist it, it seemed to me that the the, the the reason that you that you raised the the millwall fan is that is that if we if we go down the route of trying to make people all sort of non-violent pacifists you know and what have you that we that we will regret it one day because we should have violent people should they come in handy which almost seems to suggest that like we shouldn't we shouldn't i mean violence is a crime right like but there's the other there's the other end of london bridge wasn't there where th there are the people who are this is in the terrorist attack that was a year later or two years later mm. um they were working with prisoners for rehabilitation and i think they um were, I, I don't know the name of the organization i'm sorry and I know that at least one of them was killed in this, or two of them were killed in that, the people working on this. Um, and one of the prisoners um, attacked with with a knife or something like that, um, and then came out the other end of London Bridge. And again, it was an ex-prisoner who took off, off the wall. I think you mentioned it when I was talking about the other one, you know. But again, it was something took off the wall, part of a swordfish or something, and attacked them and whatever. Another one had a, a fire extinguisher and was hitting them. But the the ability there to being being people who who experienced violence in their lives or whatever, the ability to to step forward when most people step away, perhaps or run away, is I think extraordinary. Um, and it it's perhaps it's within some people to do that. Other people have experienced situations where they feel more confident and comfortable and can actually act in a way that makes it work, if you like. And again, those so those two situations on the same bridge at, at different times associated with each other. We're talking about people who 
who perhaps wouldn't come to your dinner party from earlier when you were texting all the way through, you know, wouldn't feel comfortable in that situation, but perhaps feel comfortable in a different situation. I don't know. I don't know. And and sometimes you're just pleased. And of course, these you're also surrounded by people who can threaten you when you, you don't want to be threatened, that can be dangerous, like the people who are involved in the, the violence themselves in the first place, the perpetrator of the, the in, in both cases. So I'm not saying violence is a good thing, but in certain contexts, it's, a, it's very useful to have people around you who are going to step up for that moment, you know. And and it can be bloody awful. And so and so, how do you link that? You say that you, you that you use that as an example of why we shouldn't have character education. No, I just look, as an aim, we shouldn't have. A, yeah, I mean, it's an example of why we shouldn't have characters that are all the same. So that's the first thing. Now, character edu character education as a whole, when you talk about they should be virtuous, they should be this, that and the other. And though the virtues should be slightly different, depending on the school or whatever. And I mean, everyone who ever does a list of these things always has different lists and they make these lists up of things that we should have going right back to the Greeks, of course, <laughs> of all these certain lists of things. Mm. They they. They, they sound great in the abstract, but I'm talking in the concrete, if you like. In the concrete, we do have to accept that unless we're going to really, really go for it in a sort of brainwashing sense, that we're not going to be able to shape the characters the way we want. I'm saying we shouldn't even want that, but we should offer a range of experiences through which people can find a character or the way that they feel free to express themselves in different ways so perhaps a child of yours or a child of mine finds boxing a good thing someone else finds um acting in a school play a good thing or, or whatever it happens to be mm. now some people will ban boxing because it's too violent and dangerous you know now but but some people find it a really useful way of finding something about themselves you know so yeah so it's, so you it's, you're it's, you, you seem on. to be against a particular form of character education which is about trying to make everybody have the same character but i'm i'm, I'm not sure that it's not a straw man it's not a straw man because you go across, and we talked about this earlier you go across these organizations who do character education and there's always a list of things there's exercises there's a lot of paperwork involved there's a lot of <laughs> going through this and there's a lot of sit down in the classroom and this is your character. Why do you think this? Why do you think that going on? Yeah, I'm not I'm not a favor of all that sort of stuff. Okay. No, I'm talking about education, doing stuff, getting involved in stuff. But the, but the, but education is is almost like it's always about character formation in some sense, right? Like like if you if you if you tell children that it's wrong to snatch or that it's a good idea to share stuff or that, you know, that's parenting, isn't that it? They but and then and then living together with people. But that that's if you call that formal education or or that we educate in terms of another word, I think is better is socialize. We socialize within groups mm -hmm. um, and by having different groups to socialize in. That's a good thing. Um, being able to socialize in a range of groups, in a range of scenarios, in a range of different places. So today I'm going to the football match. I will socialize in a different way than I socialize when I go to a library. 
you know, generally. I don't tend to shout out about my football team in the library and swear and things like mm. that, generally. Under my breath, perhaps, depending on the book. <laughs> and, and, and so, I mean, it, I, I guess... Like so many of these things, it often comes down to how you define them. I can I can take your point that there are there are I, I have seen examples. We talked we talked last week about resilience lessons and empathy lessons, and that does seem to be misguided. You can't do this stuff in the abstract, but when opportunities arise to authentically talk about these things, I think that 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 has to be a good thing. And even you know, like a liberal arts education is is inculcating character traits of, of things like curiosity and studiousness and inquiry and debate and so on like it seems to be inculcating more than just knowledge it's about like a way of being it's like a stance towards the world yeah it, more than just knowledge i mean we, we that we, we could talk about what knowledge is there as well couldn't we but um there, there are many things we do in a liberal arts education, ad education, whatever you want to call it, um, whether it be debating or, some, or, or or whatever it happens to be, which aren't there for character reasons, but they're there experiential reasons, but they're also the tradition, um, part of the tradition, and therefore it's about socialization over years, centuries. These are the way things are done here, if you like, and it adapts and it moves and all that, but it's not just about individual characters and it's also about how we come together and and do things and and part of the job of schools is is socialization is culturization there's another nasty word and culturization oh, i don't know is to make people aware of the culture in which they're in which is a myriad and contradictory world in which to to find oneself and Therefore, we can't just sort of point them in in singular directions. It's it's mm. multifaceted, and and there should be an argument within all those things about what these things might mean. But a lot of the time, the lesson should be it should not be there at all. But what should be there instead is, I don't know, Gordonston. They stop the lessons when the when the when the clouds leave the mountain. You know. They say, right, stop all this nonsense. Let's go and climb that mountain and off they go, you know, because they because you know, every now and then in, in the north of Scotland, there might be a cloudless moment. You know? uh -huh. and that's the chance to go up the mountain. I don't know. That's a sort of romantic view. But in other words, do the thing itself rather. So character, which is formed and reformed and reformed throughout life, I think, um, is, is not a, a thing that can be just chatted about in classrooms or or filling in bits of paper and this is the way to live a good life that i mean that comes back to aristotle what is a good life mm. the conversation could be what is a good life but it, it can be lived differently by different people and it can't be sort of dictated by the school that this is a good life and the examples whether it be church or whether it be the top public schools etc 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 where you know the examples of these stand-up, standalone characters that come out of them are very few and far between in terms of being amazing, wonderful people. Like the people you said, I think, in, in your tweet.
Hello, amigos. If you're enjoying this conversation with Martin and you would like to express that in some way, you may, should you feel so moved, become a patron of the podcast in return for various benefits. These include a searchable audio transcript of every episode to date, an ebook of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about self regulated learning that I wrote with my amazing friend Kate McAllister. And you can also access a three-part online course, Self-Regulated Learning Superpowers, which is worth 99 of your Earth Pounds, or all of the above or various combinations thereof. To sign up or to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash r-e-p-o-d. Alternatively, you can make a one-off donation to the podcast rather than becoming a monthly patron. You can do this by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. And finally, if you can't contribute financially, this is not a problem. You can support the show in many other ways by leaving a glowing review on iTunes, by sharing an episode with a friend or sharing a link and some positive energy on social media. And if you have any critical feedback, please feel free to send that to me privately. I find it very, very useful when people pick up on methods of interviewing and so on and they share insights. All such contributions and nudges, however great or small, are hugely appreciated and help keep the show on the road. Okay, now let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Martin Robinson. So, th- so this actually, I think, leads us in quite neatly into into Athena versus the machine. We got there in the end. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me in that. Um, and because you just you just said the things themselves, you use that phrase. And there's a chapter in Athena called "To the Things Themselves." So, could you just sort of, for the benefit of listeners, just give us like a, a what's your what what was the thrust of this book? What why why did you why did why did you feel compelled to write a book with such a name? Right. Um, the machine is when um, a school or any educational institution gets taken over by data, by chasing data, by um, making everything data oriented, if you like, or, or, or thinking that everything is data oriented. And, and um, if it's and data is a wide thing in itself, but we're generally talking data on spreadsheets. <laughs> so that that type of data, data, everything that can be measured, objectified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all, all of those things. And driving teachers and pupils down the idea that it's about numbers. It used to be about letters. Now it's more about numbers. You know, it used to be A, B. Now it's not nine, eight or whatever. Um and that this has taken over schooling assessment reporting everything it's taken over that way whether it be league tables all those things all the way down to what you're being asked to do as a teacher at the chalk face by your line manager all the way through so it's all the way through plus the understanding when a child says how do i get a seven in this you know how do i get this that and yeah. the other? it's more important than learning something and Athena is the opposite. It's the goddess of wisdom. And she's sort of saying, well, hang on a minute. Can we just get on to things which are a bit more about education, about the subjective, about um, things that perhaps are more difficult to 
measure, <laughs> um, but aren't necessarily so bad. And the arts, really, as well. And it's it's a sort of plea for the arts as well, which find themselves more and more in some institutions pushed right to the side. In others, still at the centre, still is a very important part. And it's not saying we shouldn't have grades. It's not saying we shouldn't have the bureaucracy. It's not saying we shouldn't have some measurement going on and some objective measurement going on. But it's saying that that shouldn't be the only thing going on, if you like, and that there is a way of... Um, the battle has to be fought against the extremists on the machine side that make it into a machine rather than a way of running an institution which actually helps Athena flourish. Right. There you go. And so I'm sure that, you know, as a former teacher myself, and I'm sure that any current or former teachers um, would recognize this description of the machine. It really does feel like like the the the, the data agenda has has taken over and i think it's sort of partly a consequence of just the invention of spreadsheets and you know various sort of data management systems that we end up just sort of serving the machine and, and often often just feeding it bad data because you know the the quality of the assessments that you that you can do when you're you know just just to subjectively you know as a science teacher we would do a, a unit on on forces, say, and the kid would get, let's say they got, in those days, it was an alphanumeric grade. Let's say a kid got a 4A. And then the next unit is on plants and they get a 5C. And you say, oh, great. Well, the kid is making progress, but it's just completely meaningless because the, 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 the forces grade is not a, not a good baseline for their understanding of plants. And so the, the, the whole system is often just like you're feeding it weird sort of very unreliable data with a with a social science hat on the quality of the data that goes in is weird and it does often feel like we're all feeding feeding this machine in the interests of accountability and accountability to parents to governors to whoever we need to show progress is being made and you can sort of see how the advent of computers has made this whole machine like thing it was kind of an inevitable inevitability that that was going to happen at least for a period of time it would be nice if we could figure out how to stop it <laughs> because it does it does really get in the way of of you know the project of of human development you know like like we're talking here about education which is obviously far more than transferring information from a curriculum into a kid's long-term memory it's a process of becoming of growing of you know of sometimes going backwards of sometimes going off down a side alley that's a dead end and then going back like human development is a complex endeavor isn't it um and i like that the the, the, the athena there's a there's a passage in the book early on where you sort of describing athena uh, and i didn't really i don't really know much about greek mythology um but you know you describe her just to give people a, a flavor there's this uh, quite a long paragraph she's the goddess of philosophy courage and inspiration of mathematics, strategy, the arts, craft, knowledge, skills, agriculture, purity. It goes on and on and on. And it's like, wow, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. Athena is not just one thing. She's just like, let's just light people up and and you know look at look at this whole mad life from from every possible angle. And wisdom seems to be the unifying idea. This idea that Athena you described her as the goddess of wisdom. Um, that knowledge is not enough, that we should aim for wisdom. Can you speak to that a little bit? What do you mean when you say that we should be aiming for wisdom in, in educating young people? Yeah, and I, I, this is something I touched on first in Trivium, but it's also 
by the way, not an end point. You don't come out of school wise, but it's it sort of gives a a far off light, if you like, that we should be in the life of the mind, whatever that happens to be, but the life of, you know, that we try and move towards something beyond just what's happening in the here and now. So there's something far off there. And it's it's so it's a direction, if you like. And the direction is is one of wisdom, one of knowledge and knowing what to do with that knowledge. Um, whether that be something again, if you remember, I talk about freedom, whether that be something we should tell people what that is. I don't think so, but it should be for the people to come to realization that what they're going to do is live a fulfilled life or, or a sort of uh, eudaimonia, you know, that term. Yeah. So you talk about that because it's a good sort of characterful <laughs> character education sort of way of doing it. But this, this idea that we're going to live um, a flourishing life, if you like, yeah. and that gives a direction towards a flourishing, but that, that flourishing is of course different for different people. Um, and yeah. therefore that that's why we need a broad curriculum if you like because we're going to find that within multiple ways and the school can give us grounding and then opening out those multiple ways for us yeah and so are you suggesting that that this idea of flourishing should be at the heart because it feels like the tail is wagging the dog at the moment in the machine model that the, the feeding the feeding the spreadsheets and making the, the every getting every possible grade out of every possible every possible kid is the moral cause that drives the system. And are you suggesting that quite a fundamental pivot away from that towards a system where or a curriculum where human flourishing is the centerpiece is prioritized? Yeah, and and I I think. If if you are measured in everything you do by other people, <laughs> in absolutely everything you do in the workplace or, or whatever it happens to be, it, it, it must be quite a debilitating <laughs> process, you know. Um, I can't imagine if I was having to go in and going to get 12 grades tomorrow um, for something. I mean, every now and then <laughs> I can see it. How am I getting on? You know, but every day to come back with a, a grade for this, a grade for that, um, and then some sort of target that I have to reach, which is also numerical. When, as we already said, and you you said very eloquently, you can't measure half these things, and so therefore, as I did when I was a teacher for in school measurements, I made it up. You know, <laughs> I made it up. There's no way I could get a percentage mime you know i've got this kid <laughs> doing mime percentage i don't effing know you know it's 23 mime you're 23 but the trouble is the kid goes and believes that 23 percent. Yeah. but how do i get to a 75 percent? So i don't bloody know <laughs> just do it better do it better you know so <laughs> you know so you get into all these sort of nonsenses so when you're in a subject that is completely unable to use these measurements if you like for anything useful um but has to make it up or else faces a disciplinary you know you have to come up with something but you know how ludicrous the whole thing is and you know 
I think a lot of people in education understand how ludicrous it was getting. Um, now, what can take its place is, like I say, a, the idea of breadth, of a broad curriculum, of not everything in that curriculum having to be measured. And I think the further way we get from everything having to be measured and to think certain things need to be measured and we need to be accountable. So how can we best do these things? That's fine. But can we also get away with having moments and more and more moments that don't have to be measured and can't be measured and shouldn't be measured mm. or are measured in a more um, light touch way? In, and the arts are certainly things like this because they're they're far more subjective, you know. But even even things like the social sciences find it, you know, you can do certain things which are measurable and certain things which you can't measure. Even in GCSE exams, different examiners look at the same essay that's come in in a humanities thing and give it quite radically different grades, you know. Mm. And they've sort of done research on this, looking at final GCSE grades and take it through to different people. It would have been one or two grades different by, yeah. by some other people. Yeah. So the measures we've got aren't accurate. So um, we need them to be softer. If you like now we've got in in arts we've got sort of fail pass merit distinction as, as something which sort of comes in you know and you can do this by looking um with comparative assessment well is that person better than that person you know yeah they are but it's not 83 percent and 81 percent or things you know a, a definite grade like that but it could be okay well that's our pass grade that's our pass now that person's done better than that. And it would get into sort of softer ways of doing it. But you wouldn't do that every lesson. You'd only do that when it where it mattered. So there are ways of doing it. There are ways of doing it. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be hard assessments either at certain points um, where they can be used in subjects they can be used mm. for, for the purpose of that subject being learnt better. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That that helps me to to get a handle on on what this what the idea of an Athena curriculum looks like in practice. Um, like, so one of one aspect is I, I like that language of softening the grades because they're so sort of woolly. Often, like the, the the tests are not reliable, including the grades on which schools are judged. Again, you know, which doesn't really stack stack up if you look at it with a social scientist hat on. Um, and so there's a couple of other sort of issues or quite quite sort of hot button issues that, that are live in the education debate that you mention in, in Athena versus the machine that I think it might be helpful to elucidate what this what this looks like. And so one of them is around is <laughs> Martin, for the benefit of listeners, he's looking a bit like he's about to be um to be bombarded with some, some tricky questions. So I think you'll be fine. You know this stuff back to front. One of them is around what should we teach, right? And there's, there's an interesting discussion quite early on in the book where you're saying like, should we teach Antigone or should we teach We Will Rock You? And, and you were using the, the example of Hirsch, you know, Hirsch's thing is, you know, um, if it's going to be re referred to in a newspaper, then that can help us to decide what's worthy of of, of being being taught. But you make the point that both of those things might be referred to in a newspaper. So that doesn't get us very far. And so... How do we resolve this? How can we decide whether or not we should teach Antigone or We Will Rock You or Oliver Twist versus Diary of a Wimpy Kid or whatever version of that? Yeah, look, you already know in your heart what the answer should be 
to these questions, it should be Antigone and Oliver Twist. But what's what's important here is that actually you should trust the teachers to make these decisions. And in, in my latest book, if you like, The Curriculum Revolutions, you get to this point of trusting teachers to make the curriculum um, and give them not only trust them, but to make sure they have full responsibility for the quality of that curriculum. We're talking about subjective judgments here. Mm -hmm. Now, if you try and make curriculum choices um, into a science, then I can't justify Antigone over um, We Will Rock You because they're both things. <laughs> they're both things, you know. But then if we make it qualitative and we start saying, well, what's the quality of the writing in um, We Will Rock You versus Antigone? I'm afraid. And we're just talking the lyrics. No, we're not talking the lyrics. Sorry, we're, we're talking the, the script. Not the songs, because the songs in Antigone are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't any, I think. <laughs> um, but we're talking the script, then we can make the qualitative judgment that the script of Antigone is a better one. But also, it's a more useful one in order to examine some great literary works that have followed down time and to also look at the idea of the Hegelian tragedy, that involves some sort of dialectic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's a, a more of a, a a rooted thing that that has been returned to again and again, and we can grow things from it. Whereas we will rock you as a piece of writing um, is very weak, actually. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at things that are bad because we need to compare and contrast good art with bad art sometimes. So perhaps we could bring in We Will Rock You as an example of a bad musical with good music. Right. I haven't seen it. And <laughs> I think the music, I'm a Queen fan, by the way. I'm a Queen right. fan. That's why I put We Will Rock oh, Okay, you really? This is heartfelt stuff. <laughs> uh, so there's a line in here. So so to sum up that that what your argument is i think you see you, you write that um we need to rely on the role of the connoisseur and the curator and not let the populists take over what does this mean in practice that we should teach antigone and not we will rock you i suppose i mean i haven't really ever thought about this in great depth but i suppose to sort of to to so-called steel man that argument i think that the argument that some people use is that is that Oliver Twist is quite a difficult text. It's quite it's it's not particularly accessible. That there is not easy. It's not fun to read initially. It doesn't give you that sort of dopamine hit in the way that Diary of a Wimpy Kid does because it's just you know <laughs> I like the snarl there. Um, and so people are saying that if you want kids to develop a healthy relationship with books, that you should just let them read whatever it is that. That, that will make them want to pick up a book of their own accord. And that actually like trying to force feed them high art, like, you know, Antigone and Shakespeare and what have you, um, is counterproductive, that it can turn people off. And lots of people do say that, don't they? That they were taught Shakespeare. I was taught Shakespeare in a really, really dull way at school. And it put me off for years. And lots of people say that. And I think that that's where that argument comes from. I don't think that, it, that they're just saying that we should just go with what's popular now. Well, it's, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Because then we're saying that reading anything, anything, 
is 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 exactly the same as reading anything else that you can choose as long as you're reading and reading's good for you as though it's like breathing you know but even air you know you can have good air and bad air you know so you'd want to move towards the good air as much as possible and we have a and we have a right and we have a right to make sure that the air is as good quality as we can make it now if culture exists in a way that it's something it's the it's 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 like air it's what it's what we breathe it's what is around us that um shapes us that moves us that changes us that that is you know our lived experience of the world if you like that's what culture is it's 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 everything around us um then we try and populate that with the idea of developing within children a connoisseurship a, a way of what you'd call with food developing a good palate um trying to get to a point of judgment to be able to say what you prefer and why and all those things so we need to show a range of stuff now if you just leave reading and just say reading is good that's it then every book matters not a jot just as long as they're reading then we're just giving over the the whole world of um judgment and and taste and all those things that that um the the person who lives in the arts or something like that would say no we need critique we need to say this is better than this and this is why and therefore we need to experience the range of things now if you're just diary of a wimpy kid and that's all your life that's all you ever read then i prefer you not to read at all well that's not how it works though is it like if you go <laughs> yes that's how it works you, to... you should not read diary of a wimpy kid and that's all you read that's just not how it should work you're better off not reading you're better off doing something else wow that's a, that's quite a harsh line so because no it isn't but well, i don't think there is i don't think seriously, there is a single... seriously do you think do you think it is good for a human being for their 70 years let's say three score and ten on this planet to have read only diary of a wimpy kid and never read anything else no. and that's better than reading a bit of shakespeare but that is a straw man because there isn't anybody who only ever reads no exactly. who only ever reads so, diary exactly. of a wimpy kid but but if they, if they get into the habit of <laughs> you know if they get to the end of that my son read diary of the wimpy kid if, if you get to the end of if you get to the end of of the diary of the wimpy kid books and you go to the library and then you pick up something by someone else and one day later on people don't and the most difficult thing the most difficult thing uh, um is when you get i think i think it's the age of 12 or something like that i'm not entirely sure and I, I, if i had this through my fingertips i could um say what the information is but most people get to a point where reading stops if you like and that that is a time where and i think it's what adult fiction and the whole sort of criteria of the sort of teenage fiction or whatever they call it is trying to bridge if you like but you get to that point where reading stops being easy and starts to be difficult and what schools have been finding very difficult is to move readers on from the diary of the wimpy kid obsession if you like or from the harry potters and I, that's controversial these days but there you go um but from from 
reading that is for children and young, young adults, so early teens, and moving on to um, more adult fiction in the way and how to get children to do that, I think is a very difficult thing to do. But if schools don't do it, I don't think many people will find it easy to just pick up books. Children who come from well-read families, yeah, on the whole might find it easier, but that doesn't necessarily flow. But but it's a lot more likely than kids who come from non-reading families or, or, or families that read very little. Um, so I think in, in, in the sense of what the Workers' Education Association used to be about or whatever, you know, the, these great um, institutions of getting people to read great stuff, the idea of great literature is important. Now, what great literature is changes <laughs> and, you know, but, but we need the idea of something being greater than something else in order to help us towards wisdom, if you like to help us towards this is great art, mm -hmm. you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is, I think, great art, by the way, in in its mm -hmm. way, um, compared to the Birdie song. And if people just listen to the Birdie song and never listen to Bohemian Rhapsody, I think that would be a shame. Yeah, 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 I can see that. Okay, so, so yeah, all right. I mean, I mean, to my mind, it seems to point towards a, a diversity. Like you were saying, that you can you can compare and contrast. It doesn't mean that you negate uh, the Wimpy Kid series completely. Right? No, you, know, you you can do it, but if it's all, yeah, if yeah. that's your diet, or or yeah, or you're or you're encouraged by your school just to read, and that then any reading is good. But actually reading, you, it's not just I've learned to read. You've got to learn to read other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Shakespeare is you're learning to read Shakespeare. You're not learning to read. You're learning to read Shakespeare. You're learning to read Dostoevsky. I don't know. You're learning to read these things just as when you go in you, these these different worlds, these different cultural environments you find yourself in. You need to learn how to find yourself at home within mm -hmm. that, if you like. Yes. Yeah, thank you. There's another there's another um, topic that comes up in this book, which is also a hot one at the moment, which is that of decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and you you refer to that in Athena, and and I think that when we when we spoke a few months ago, um, this this sort of came up as an example of of the sort of thing that that sits in this. You know, you you're essentially talking about how there's there's a line in the book where you say that curriculum can only make inroads into people's minds if we accept that some of what we teach is highly contested, challengeable, as well as challenging, and that we should teach the controversy. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, how does this play out for you with regard to this, this question of decolonizing the curriculum? Right. So I, I talk about this uh, in the um, curriculum revolutions as well, Yeah, which I follow, follow that through. Um, it's it's a, a difficult one. Um, but if we start with avoiding the word decolonization for this moment in the conversation, okay. and to get to get to the point of what is the idea of whose knowledge, and I think that 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 is often one that comes up. But people say, "But whose knowledge is this?" And and I, the way you tackle that is knowledge, like culture, doesn't belong. To groups of people knowledge 
and culture is there for sharing. It's a form of communication. It's a form of the way of living, the way of being in the world, if you like. So we invite people in. We we communicate with them in different ways. We have a things around us. It's a sharing thing. It's not a thing to be saying, this is ours, keep out, keep out, and things like that. Plus, it's not owned by those people either it's not owned by us we don't own a thing in in terms of cultural sense plus it's also something that's not stable in the way that it doesn't stand still it's fluid so if we start from those two points culture is fluid yeah and it's not owned <laughs> then we're in a different place <laughs> to answer these questions, if you like, because we're not saying, well, there's not a group of people who own a culture. Mm -hmm. And there's not also the sense that that group of people is stable in its sense. And this is a group of people who live in this way. This is what they do. And the, the more that um, we get the idea of modernity, if you like, modernity makes culture mix more and more and the cultural world around us we're forever coming across each other's ideas and thoughts and ways of being in the world and being changed and shaped and moved as time goes by as well so that is quickening up around us and and you know we're mashing it up more if you like now that is great and exciting when you're young but it's also alienating and difficult for a lot of people when they're old not for everyone but for a lot of people when they're old, because they're losing touch <laughs> with the way things are done now, you know, and things like that, because we get set in certain patterns as individuals within that. And if the culture around us is very stable, our experience of it is very stable. So for centuries, people used to be living in the field and living in the farm to the field or whatever, you know, that agrarian sort of life. It seemed that society and culture was very stable and still and this is the way that the peasants live their life but now if you put us in the city of london i live in you know it's very unstable things are moving all the time things are changing all the time and um you can't say that that is that person's culture that's that person's culture that's that person's knowledge that's that person's knowledge and that stays the same forever so one of the Great books to read about this is Paul Gilroy's The Black Atlantic. Talks about the fluidity um, between places and the idea about the cultural flows, if you like, um, that were created. And he talks about this, about the slave trade, about how um, things moved and how things changed. But so do people talk about the black experience in Africa and the black experience in America, but hardly talk about the black experience going across the oceans, if you like, and how that historically um, changed things. And another point he makes in the book is that if you talk to, um, at a certain time, he wrote this, He, he it, this was a very controversial book in America. But he said for a lot of black Americans, they have more in common with white Americans than they do with black Africans. Um, now, not for everyone, by all means. Again, he's not someone who says they are all like this, we're all like that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's always 
nuanced in lots of ways. People are different and different, you know, don't live in, in one way, one sense of the world. So this idea that people live in a certain way and that way is black, that way is white, <laughs> is, is a nonsense. People live in different ways. People experience life in different ways. And it's not down to things that we could say in terms of the word colonized um, is not a colonized experience. So I'll give you an example of what is known as black music, the blues. Now, the blues were an American form. They came out from the American experience. Yes, a lot of black involvement in that, but it wasn't the black music of Africa. It involved the black music of Africa, but it also involved um, Irish, Scottish. <laughs> and also when you get into, certainly into gospel and other things, Christian ideas, you know? Um, and a lot of those ideas are part of the colonized experience, yes, but they, they are musics that we can all experience that that have been colonized, decolonized, and all the way through, you know. There's there's the cultural whirl and mix that, that happens within that straight away. So it's not a black music. It's predominantly played by black people at that time, but it wasn't entirely pure black music, you know. Mm -hmm. Um and we we could go on to hundreds of examples. There's CLR James wrote a really good book, the um about cricket beyond a boundary. And if you want to read the best book about cricket, I think Beyond a Boundary probably is. But he talks there about his experience in Trinidad, I think it was, Trinidad and Tobago, um, learning a British curriculum. Um, and through English literature and the importance that these things gave him as ways of seeing the world and ways of thinking about the world, but also, most importantly, the game of cricket. Now, I think cricket is one of the most colonial ideas you could possibly have. <laughs> um, so much so that when De Valera um, became the first um, Taoiseach, I suppose, uh, uh, of Ireland. He he tried to kick out all the sort of English games and uh, English, you know, um, whether it be rugby, cricket, football, and, and replace it with with Gaelic games with Irish games. Um, but anyway, back to that. When CLR James found himself, his personality, his character, a lot within the cricket field, and things that he loved within cricket. But he said that when he had the the joyful moment to be one of the to watch the first West Indies cricket team to beat England at Lords, he said, you know, they dressed us in whites, but they couldn't change the color of our skin. You know, he's sort of saying that within this, we are still we're we're changing it, we're making it different, we're making it ours. But you know, it, it gave us the structure through which to rebel if you like it gives us the structure which to do that now to decolonize would be to take cricket away to take um or the idea is to decolonize now decolonization itself is one of those words that 
means lots of different things to lots of different people. But for um, there's a um, I might even have it here in front of me somewhere. Let's just get it right. I do. I do have this book. So I could hold it up, but of course no one can see it because this is a podcast. But against decolonization, taking African agency seriously. Yeah. But this this idea here about that decolonization was an idea for, you know, kicking out the the, the colonizers from African countries to allow African countries to be free of the yoke of the of well mainly western countries now whether you talk about how the chinese and russians are getting involved is another matter but that, that that's another thing altogether but um this book talks about how decolonization in that sense makes a lot of sense you know it it means something but way it's becoming involved in and embroiled as a political movement in africa is how people have, have taken it to mean anti-modernity and they're sort of conflating modernity and colonization and these two things. So what it actually is, a lot of the time, you know, is get rid of science because it's the white man's science, you know, or something like that, which is which is saying that white people can own science, which I think is a disaster to say that, you know, science is a white person's thing <laughs> and, and historically completely inaccurate <laughs> and wrong, you know. You can't even draw those lines around people. So anyway, I've talked for a long time. Anything you want to pick up? Yeah, thank you. Um, and so, and so, I'm trying to just to try. I'll try to sort of to summarize if I can. Are you essentially saying that you know that that history um, is complicated, right? And 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 that things are not boundaried, and that and that to to say that something has been colonized. And therefore, it needs to be decolonized, as though that's a straightforward project. Is, in some sense, um, a non-starter. Is that what you think? That that it's just sort of like that we shouldn't sort of go down this route because we're trying to rewrite a history that that doesn't really lend itself to that sort of. This was colonized, and now we need to cleanse it of that of that of that past. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, and. I think we could have a discussion about what this means in practice, because it doesn't mean keeping everything the same. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have, like I always say, a, a challenge within the curriculum. I think these things should be talked about in the curriculum. Yeah. Um, rather than just accepted as being sensible or whatever so i think that the trouble we have in the curriculum is we we almost get to a point or did a few years ago certainly where if we just bring in a female author or a gay author and a gay author and a black author that these people stand for an entire way of thinking about the world you know right got a black author in that takes the black author box um and this is a very machine-like way of doing it, but, you know, it's the way it's sometimes done. Uh, we've got a gay author there that ticks that box, et cetera, et cetera. But we're talking about humanity as a whole. And, of course, not one gay person represents gay people. <laughs> it represents a, a, not even a section of humanity. Now, there might be things within that point of view that's being offered that speaks to people who are gay or heterosexual or not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and there are things within that but it but you can't compartmentalize all these works of art as though they represent a whole group and that it's a lie to say that it's a lie to say that and it also dehumanizes sort of elements of society and says you know their sexuality the color of their skin um their sex their gender whatever it happens to be sort of suddenly is more important than the work itself that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a variety of work saying different things which of course will probably represent a range of people more than dead white men yeah but but shakespeare is is far more important if you just write shakespeare off and say he's, he's a dead white man then take him off the curriculum and replace him with i don't know does that get us anywhere? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you think it does. You think it does if we take Shakespeare off and replace him because he's a dead white man. No, no, not really. I'm just I'm trying to understand it because you're sort of on the one hand, you're saying that it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to sort of to cut to categorize people and to take this tick box mentality and to say that we that we, um, you know, we shouldn't just have. Yeah, like you say, like a black author, a gay author, a female author, and therefore we have a representative curriculum. But you're also saying we shouldn't not do that <laughs> and no, that we no, shouldn't no. and that we shouldn't have that we shouldn't have that conversation or that representation isn't important because a lot of this is not just that the ideas of different types of people and different types of ideas are represented in the curriculum but also that different types of people are represented and people often say like i want to see somebody like me who's being put on a pedestal, who's being celebrated, whose work is being celebrated as somebody who's disabled, for example, or somebody who's whatever whatever sort of marginalised or oppressed group from history who have been previously silenced or, or not, not given the same airtime as dead white men were for, for centuries. And there's a reason that so many of the statues are of, are of dead white men, right? You know, they're, they're, there's a history, there's a history that, that can't be denied there. Um, and so... People are trying to sort of to, to shift the balance of power in in a way that's more equitable and and that's, and, and even even sometimes people are saying okay, that it should but... now it, we, we, that it's been that, that straight white people have had have had a good run of it for so long that maybe you said stra- I didn't say straight white people by the way but anyway I think there's a there's a lot there's 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 probably a lot of um, gay white people who who were never thought of as gay probably who um, have written stuff over the years. So there's a lot of what what's suppressed is not the fact that the people were writing or creating artworks or anything else. It's the fact that their sexuality wasn't um, talked about. It was oppressed, you know, so it wasn't the thing at the time. So whether it be Michelangelo or, or whatever, you know, mm. <laughs> by the by. Anyway, <laughs> that if, if we say that we are representing, is everyone represented in our curriculum? in terms of disability, in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender, in terms of sex, et cetera, et cetera, and we must have an equal range of it, then we will, in certain instances, distort what is going on there. So, for instance, if we have got four authors at GCSE that we're studying, we're never going to be able to represent all those groups. It's likely that actually we we might have more female authors than male authors because we're studying the 19th century novel or, or whatever we're doing in some cases. You know, there are ways there 
that are already going to sort of represent different groups in because of the strength of the the work that's already around there there are other instances where people of representations are going to not be there because if we're looking at the 19th century novel then in english literature i don't know i mean if we go back further there's afro ben <laughs> you know people tend to pick as as an example from earlier but i don't know how many examples people find it at different points so can we do it yes we can but the problem is do those people represent a group i'm saying they don't represent a group they represent themselves does their work represent that group is it owned by that group well, i'm not i'm saying a group of people don't necessarily all hold the same views or think that that piece of work represents them or is is great in in, in the reckoning um so it's it's a difficult way of doing it to think about it in terms of representation what i am saying <laughs> is if you've got a strong range of work to look at within an art form so if i talk about my own art form which which is drama then a lot of drama you would take from different experiences and different art forms and different ways of communicating and storytelling physical storytelling in a space on stage with an audience you know you are going to take from lots of different cultures and lots of different traditions um, and be able to piece those things together and to give a good representation of the history of that art form and it get, you know even if you go and see the lion king or something like that it's not you know it's a great work of art um and i mean the the musical not the cartoon it's amazing <laughs> the musical isn't it yeah so it's it's something that brings together a, a great tradition so julie Taymor, who who was the director of that brought together shakespeare well the lion king story brought together shakespeare of course um and then brings together i think it's sri lankan shadow puppetry um then there's the african music african dance and 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 all that so we you know it's the rich traditions that are brought together um now if you decolonized the lion king <laughs> um the shakespeare goes out of the window i suppose and then well i don't know where we are then mm. i can see you i can see your point it's a complicated it's a complicated debate um and it's one that I've, I've talked about before on the podcast but thank you for that that does that does go some way to clarifying but it's 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 important to think it's, I, I think fluidity culture is fluid it's not owned and it's not hermetically sealed it doesn't belong to a itself it doesn't stay the same or else it becomes a museum piece you know it, it's something that is taken away from us as human beings and ceases to be about how we live our lives. Um, and if we do that to culture, then it's it no longer lives. And if we say that a group of people all owns a culture, then we misrepresent a group of people because they become homogenized and no longer are, are heterogeneous and no longer able to be their own people you know 
and and this comes you know from my my own experience my own family's life if you like from back over the centuries involves um black and white you know in in some sort of strange melange that happened a few years ago of you know my my grandmother was mixed race now that story i know very little about by the way um but it doesn't make me uh think of myself entirely as belonging in one place in one culture in one way plus over a lifetime our identities change the way we think about the world changes and, and we, we we need these changes to happen around us what we mustn't do is have the idea that because someone is black or gay or female or disabled that we shouldn't have them on the curriculum mm -hmm. yeah of course now that that's that you know, or Jewish, or 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 Palestinian, or, or whatever it happens to be, that we must oppress certain people because because it's the same sort of thinking, but the other way around is saying that group of people, you know, mustn't <laughs> write stuff. We mustn't listen to their voices at all, or whatever. And you're doing the same thing, but in a reverse sort of way. And and I certainly wouldn't be in favour of that. So. My curriculum probably looks similar to a lot of other people's, but the reasoning behind it is probably different. And, I, and things like Black History Month, I, I don't think that's a good idea because that, that again says history can be compartmentalized. It can be, this is a color. These are people. This is the way their lives are. It's separate to others. Mm -hmm. And it, it fed a need at the time because, you know, black faces were out of the curriculum <laughs> totally you know and of course they're there and always have been there yeah i mean my my grandmother's father came over from the west indies in the early 20th century so before the first world war you know edwardian um times so that sort of voice if you like that sort of knowledge of history if you like that black face in southampton at that time would have been completely out of history in, in terms of what we think because so we think the windrush that's when black people arrived no they were here before you know but, and quite a few or whatever um so i don't know but that doesn't mean his voice should be ignored of course not it shouldn't be ignored and it shouldn't be taken in that way. But um, so black history is part of history. Make sure it's there, but don't have it as a month. That's it's a separate thing. Yeah, I agree with that. It's ridiculous as though it's not it's not important for the other, other 11 months of the year. Um, yeah. And it's and it's not black. It's our history. Right. Everyone's history <clears throat> that involves people who are black, people who are white and at times, and and also at, at times when you know, at the Enlightenment, when this sort of strange sort of idea of freedom and all these things were taken for granted, now we're going to be free. So the Enlightenment philosophers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then had to think, hang on a minute, we've got slaves. Ah, they're black though. If we dehumanize black people. <laughs> Then we can do we can we can justify anything you know so this sort of scientific racism sort of comes up and and the idea of race and and the people are, are different 
because of their race, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, perhaps sort of gathered momentum at that time. So the French Revolution, it's the Haitian Revolution we need to look to. As anyway, it's, it's going to keep me going forever. I just like go, go on about it. But it's a very interesting and important conversation, I think. Thank you for that. I've got, I've got one more question, if I may, Martin. And it's that there's, you use this phrase a couple of times. This is changing the topic slightly. Um, a community of minds. You use that phrase a few times There's a, there where you say that we should look at the community of minds as a whole and pursue wisdom as a collegiate affair. And then elsewhere, you also talk about the community of minds of teachers. That you write, Athena wants to re-energize the teacher as a member of the community of minds from which they emerged. And I wonder whether that um that phrase was informed by this idea that i've sort of thought and written a fair, fair amount about over the years of the community of inquiry which is often used to describe a, a process a bit like philosophy for children and i was just curious as to whether or not that's something that you've done in your past is that is that an approach that you've that you've seen that you that you would that you advocate for because it seems to me in my experience of using that approach to be a really effective way of going about um, about pursuing some sort of sense of collective inquiry, collective wisdom, but it's also something that's one of those. Um, it's one of those pedagogical approaches that has has its fans and its detractors, and some some people are quite fiercely against it. It would seem. I was just wondering where you stand on the philosophy for children question. <laughs> P4C, and again, with all these things, we can set up our straw men happily. Um. So if I go back to the trivium and my three-legged stool of um, dialectic, grammar, and rhetoric, mm -hmm. and taking away one of those legs, how the thing can no longer function as a stool, can no longer function as an education, if you like. The issue I've had with approaches I've seen from some philosophy for children that's, I don't know if it's everything, so I haven't seen everything, is you're just getting in there and talking about things without knowing what you're talking about, perhaps. And a lot of it, and it's it's like it's a Socratic thing. You remember what happened to Socrates, by the way? <laughs> Corrupting the youth. They killed him. Um, so if if we look at, trying to expose people's ignorance so what i've also seen you know is is the the moderator is the source of all knowledge and is having a great time there and bringing things out from the kids um from what they're saying but the the lack of in-depth knowledge from the kids in the first instance about what they're saying or what they're talking about is is somewhat missing the but the moderator knows a lot about perhaps what they're talking about and, and can do the devil's advocate stuff and things like that and play with various issues but it's about opinion rather than rooting opinion in a range of factual and other people's opinions knowledge so to me the important part is to ensure that the debate is from a point of knowledge but 
knowledge that can clash, that we can have different viewpoints around, that all all have got to a point of knowing enough in order to have the debate, to have the discussion, to have the um, the um, approach. So the dialogue comes from a, a position where all have a certain amount of ballast yeah. that they can they can use. Okay, on that we definitely agree. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, but but when the knowledge is there, when the knowledge base is there, if it comes at the end of a teaching sequence, for example, I mean, there are some topics where you don't necessarily need a great a great sort of subject knowledge base in order to have a discussion about. You know, I remember having a, a conversation once. It was about um, if you steal. It was one of Ian Gilbert's thunks. It was like if you um, if you look at a newspaper headline in a shop, if you read the front page of the newspaper without buying it, is that stealing? And I can remember just thinking like, that's not really that interesting a question. And the kids talked about it for a full hour and it was really interesting. And it was just about the morality of stealing and they were drawing on lots of different examples. And sometimes there are, there's, there are some things that young people have quite an inherent sense of, of sort of right and wrong and, and what's, you know, what's a good way to be and so on and what's fair and unfair. And there are some there are some topics that that they can just talk about at length and have you can have really fruitful conversations about that don't necessarily require a rich knowledge base. But if you're doing it in the context of a history lesson or whatever it might be, if you're talking, if you're having a conversation about, you know, stem cell research or whatever it might be, genetically modified babies, designer babies, then yes, you know, they need to have a knowledge base that underpins. Yeah, and and then you're thinking about precious curriculum time. And do we want to use this time to just chat about, chat about, do do philosophy about things, or do we want to root that philosophy <clears throat> in a learning process about the philosophies that are out there? So this is the utilitarian point of view. Right, we have to do utilitarianism. This is a point of view the Stoics might say this, that, and the other. All of a sudden, you've got a new subject. It's called philosophy. Or we've got logic there. Here's some logical fallacies. Why might these be useful to use? So again, we've got a, a knowledge base around certain things that we can use there. So perhaps there is a room for a subject called philosophy. And you know what I'd do? I'd use that instead of making religion mandatory in schools. I would um, have a philosophy curriculum. Yeah, I, I, on that we agree as well. Okay, on, on two notes of agreement, let, let's wrap this up then for now. Thank you, Martin. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, I still find you a really fascinating person, and and especially just like how how well read you are is it's phenomenal. Like like reading all of the references that you refer to in Athena, and it's not like you're <laughs> you're shoehorning them in to say like look how well read I am. Like you've really thought deeply about all of these people and the works and how these things fit together. And it's a if, if out of the three of them, they're all well worth the price of admission. But out of the three of them, Athena, I think, is my favorite because it just made me think very hard about the curriculum in a way that I haven't done before. So thank Brilliant. you for that. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a joy and a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for inviting me. Time is a measure of change.